Bookshop, the George Street Community Bookshop podcast for book lovers everywhere. Hello and welcome to In the Bookshop, a podcast about books recorded in an actual bookshop. So we're in George Street Community Bookshop in Glossop. If you don't know where Glossop is, we're in between Manchester and Sheffield. So it's the northwest corner of Derbyshire. My name's Steve Roberts, by the way, and I, I, along with um, a number of colleagues, we bought the bookshop as a cooperative. And what we are going to be doing is turning it into a community bookshop by selling shares uh, so you can own it. You can help run this bookshop and decide how we do it. If you walk into our bookshop, you will just encounter books, thousands of books. Right now, I'm sat with my back to a, a shelving that reaches up to the ceiling. And it says books A to D, but actually it only gets to see that's how many books we have anyway this podcast will be inviting people from all walks of lives many will be songwriters musicians or there'll be writers authors but today we have somebody who's a radio producer also runs a record club where he plays records in the labor club here in Glossop, and his name is simon galloway it's the music equivalent of a book club, uh-huh. is how I first described it. I like it. I'm very good at it as well. So um, what we do with our guests is we ask them to bring in some books and to rattle through the shelves here and see if they can find books that mean something to them, uh, either because they loved the book as a, as a child or they love the book now or they love the book as an adolescent or because the parents love a book. And tell us about the book and perhaps why they like it so much. So uh, welcome, Simon. Thank you. Can you tell us about your first book? Um, yeah, I have to say that I'm not the most well-read person, but when we were having a little nose around the shop earlier, I was actually pleasantly surprised at how many authors' names are recognised and books that I've actually read that I'd forgotten that I'd read and things like that. But the, the books that I've picked out today are books that I, I've read more than once and that I keep coming back to them. And the first two, I'm going to kind of group them together. But the first one begins uh, just a few miles from here in, in Edale. And it's a book about walking the, the Pennine Way, which is one of my... Um, I've got quite a few books about walking the Pennine Way. Uh, it's one of my little obsessions. Uh, but this particular one is by Mark Wallington called Pennine Walkies. He takes his dog, uh, Boogie, for basically the longest dog walk in history. <laughs> book came out in 1996. And at that time, Mark Wallington had just moved to Edale himself. And it was seeing um, Kinder Scout from his window in his house every day thinking, that's where the Pennine Way begins, aren't you? I could walk that. And it's, it's just this thing that keeps keeps nagging at him. And I first read this book about 2002, 2003, um, when I'd been living down south for 10 years or so and moved back up north, came to Glossop. And uh, this and, and, and the other book that, that I'm going to talk about next are both kind of what helped me remind me what it is to be northern again and, and just find, you know, get back to kind of like who I was, where I grew up. You know, I grew up at the other side of the Snake Pass in Sheffield. So, yeah, this book was the first time I'd really read anything about the, the Pennine Way and since become kind of obsessed with the locations uh, you know, that, that are mentioned in the book, and I'd love to be able to, to walk it one day. That was a good uh, question I was going to yeah. ask. Yeah, sorry. Although I'm told that the coast-to-coast walk is a nicer walk to do, and that the, the Pennine Way itself can be uh, a bit arduous. 
Although Mark Wellington doesn't seem to encounter uh, too many problems, although Simon Armitage, when he did the Pennine Way, he he found it very hard going. Uh, And that kind of goes immediately into the next book that I've got here, which is Simon Armitage, um, a book called All Points North, which is a mixture of short pieces. There's there's a few, you know, you'd expect, you know, just poetry from, from him. And there are a few poems in there, but some short stories in there. And also just stories about what was happening in his life and remembering things that happened when he was a kid. And it is all about living in a, in a Pennine town uh, in, in Yorkshire and being in the north. And like I say, it, along with the, the Pennine Walkers book, just helped me just kind of yeah, reorientate myself right. and, and, and get me back into the, you know, the, the, the kind of culture and landscape of, of being, being up north. And I actually prefer this book by Sam Armitage, when poetry is just part of what it does rather than just pure poetry. Like, like a lot of poets and, and songwriters as well, sometimes the preamble is just as good as, as the, the poem or the song. The, the setting it up and, and putting it into context as, as the actual piece itself. So that's kind of you know, where, where, you know, how I see this book. And it's like, it's one big preamble, basically. Right. That's those two books that kind of go hand in hand together. So how, how long does it take them to walk the Pennine Way? It's generally about three weeks. I think that's that's how you know, Mark okay. Wallington... I'll, I'll let you off not walking it yeah. then. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it, it would be you know a, a, a serious commitment. I, I've got a bad back, you know. Oh, God. You've got to carry all that stuff. But yeah, I, I, just, I really do like the idea of you know just, just setting off and you know walk, walking off and you know, walking through Hebden Bridge and you know, go through Bronte Country and you know, I've been to Malham Cove several times, which is just you know, amazing. Uh, but there's one place that I wanted to get to a couple of years ago and then for, for one reason or another didn't get there uh, called High Cup Nick. Really? The, the nearest road is probably about five miles away. So, you know, even from the road, it's it's a you know, bit of a trek to get up there. But it's from the descriptions I've read in, in the, the Pennine Walkies book and, and other things as well. It's the nearest we've probably got in this country to the Grand Canyon. Okay. Right? It's not I that knew, grand. I knew nothing about that. Yeah, it's not that grand because it's not on that scale. You know, the Grand Canyon is probably about as big as Britain <laughs> altogether. But you know, so this is just like it on a you know on a smaller scale. But for us in in this country, it's just it's just this massive thing. And a friend of mine who has walked the Pennine Way says the first time he went up there, it was the first time that he'd ever heard true silence outdoors spooky but he was the one who said you might want to try the coast to coast walk because that's that's nicer because there are you know sections of of the, the pennine way that are just basically bog and that the weather is very changeable especially when you get to um penny Gent, places like that see the words that you know, what was the other high cup nick high cup nick that's and penny Gent, the names of places it's literature in itself, isn't yeah. it? You know, it yeah. sounds like oh, something you should write about, you know. It's yeah, it's, it's, it's beautiful. I would like to do it one day. And Simon Armitage, his approach to it was, well, he did it back to front to what everybody else normally does it. But he did it uh, as sort of like, you know, he'd walk for a day and then he was trying to, you know, earn his keep, so sing for his supper, basically. And um, you know, each stop that he made, he would try and do a little... He came to Glossop. I saw him yeah. in Glossop, yeah. That was the last night of his doing the war. We saw him off. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we didn't... Well, I'll not tell you what happens right. in the book, but because uh, that would spoil it for you. But, yeah, that's that's towards the end of the book. And I, you know, I didn't find out about that, that event until, well, until I saw it in the book. <laughs> Even, the, you know, the, the outward, where, where it happened is just... It's just 100 well, yards yeah. up the road. I turn around, I can see it, so, yeah. Right, next book? 
Next book um, is called Boring Postcards. This is brilliant. And it's it's a it's a grey uh, rectangular it's sort of like you know a, a, well, it's like that's landscape isn't it rather than portrait. Mm. So but yeah, it, the shape is like twice the size of a postcard. Twice size a postcard, yeah. Mm. And I saw it one day in the queue in Borders. If you remember okay. Borders, I was stood in the queue. I think it was Christmas shopping or something like that. And and I just saw this, and the title immediately kind of drew me in. Anything boring, I'm there, you know. And this must be, you know, getting off 20 years ago that I saw this. And opened it up and saw, you know, it, it is literally just postcards of, well, what's this one? Hinkley Point Nuclear Power Station in Somerset. And uh, photo postcards of, of motorway service stations, of, of actual motorways and uh, libraries and uh, holiday centres. A postcard of Basingstoke Town Centre. And I just thought it was the most ridiculous thing. And they're all empty, aren't they? Yeah. This is this is the beauty of it. Yeah. I just thought it was the most ridiculous thing that, that I'd ever seen. You know, a new shopping centre, Burton on Trent. Why would why would anyone make postcards of these things? Civic pride. Who 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 bought them? Who 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 sent them? And who 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 would you send them to? You know, I, I just thought it was ridiculous. And then I remember showing it to my brother, and he was you know, almost crying with laughing mm. at the ridiculousness of it all. But then, as times passed, and you know, I occasionally just pull this off the shelf, and I find myself not laughing uh, anymore, but looking at it and and actually understanding what this is what this is all about. And this it's all about that nineteen fifties vision of the future, of that yeah. the optimism. It is it, it is absolutely the optimism and lots of these places are being pulled down now being called concrete monstrosities and all this sort of thing but there's also you know a huge amount of respect and interest in, in this architecture brutally start our architecture and it is that it's, it's civic pride but it's, it's not just that it's the 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 civic responsibility right and the idealism of it all architects actually working in a really practical way to solve the problems that they were faced with in rebuilding this country after the Second World War and sorting out the, you know, the Victorian slums and all that sort of thing. And you look at these photos now and it still looks like that version of the future that we right. never quite got. I agree with you, but the problem is, it was like, you know, you said the slum clearances and things like that. That a lot of the slum clearances, they ended up with housing that was much worse, wasn't it? Beca this, this because of this misplaced this is, yeah. optimism. So there's, a, there's a kind of sadness to the pictures, there is. isn't there? There is, because you can look at it now and see the failures of it all, yeah. even though I think these things were done with good intention. Yeah. It was really... This is why they had postcards of them, yeah. because they were, they were showing them off, yeah. weren't they? They were, they were proud of these things. There's a campaign to save one of these brutalist examples of architecture in, in Wrexham mm. going on at the moment. So I'm not sure what the building is used as, but the, uh, a friend of mine is a journalist on the Wrexham paper and he's been reporting on a campaign to keep what everybody for, for many years thought was ugly, but now has become much loved building. But your hipster planner still sees it as boring you know, yeah. is, is there any narrative to this book no, at all? It's, it's, it's just literally there's no introduction, there's no text you in there. Down. It is left completely kind of blank in, in that sense, yeah. in that he just 
shows these postcards and and I think and I think that's the beauty of it and that's why my my relationship with the book changes I love it oh, oh, oh. I wish I had it <laughs> okay so next book next book um it's uh it's two, two in one again but actually properly two in one this time it's uh Julian Cope's head on and repossessed so head on is uh is it? memories of the Liverpool punk scene and the story of the teardrop exposed 1976 to 1982 and repossessed is shamanic depressions in Tamworth and London 1983 to 1989 and essentially it's Julian Cope and his how how he made himself basically to the uh kind of uh, shamanistic uh, figure uh, that that he is today i actually bought this book and didn't read it for years Mm. just sat on the shelf and then I was work, worked in Liverpool for about three years it was a you know, long journey in sat on the train and you know, I, I ploughed through lots of books um, uh, on those journeys and this was one of them and actually I, I picked the right time to, to read it because uh, I hadn't been working in Liverpool long I was getting to know the city and then reading this book I could actually picture what it was on about mm. even though you know by then Pro had moved uh, locations several times. Yeah, I could identify which you know where, where it originally was. You know, as talked about in the, in the book, you know, Matthew Street and all, all that sort of area, Eric's and and things, and, and just just the, the kind of general vibe because you know that there is there is a vibe to, to Liverpool that's different to, to any city that I've been to, and I think he captures that uh, really well in this book. But not only that, he's just an amazing writer he, is, he, yeah. he uh just writes it, it just kind of it just flows beautifully and it's so vivid and you actually feel everything with him you really really do now that there's you know, a bit in the book where he's talking about uh, writing about um taking lsd for the first time just the way that he writes about it. You know, I've I've never taken LSD, but but I've spoken to people who have who've read this book and said it is just like that. And I felt like I was experiencing Julian Cope's life by osmosis. <laughs> Sat on the train, just feeling like you know, out of my brain on the train, um, and, and just just you know reading this book, and it's just just an absolute joy uh, to read, and it's one that I come back to every couple of years. And again, every time I read it, I, I take away something different you know, as I get older and he, he was a bit of, he was a joke in Liverpool he was a bit of a joke in Liverpool but now everybody definitely has uh, has reconsidered him and he's no longer thought of as a joke in Liverpool although the people who know him well still think he's a pain in the arse because I think he was and in that book he's quite open that he was somebody who walked around saying look at me look at me look at me look at me which you don't like you doing in Liverpool. You're meant to just be looked at and not asked to be looked at. And he asked to be looked at, didn't yeah, he? Because yeah. he wasn't from Liverpool. And I think that's. I think he manages to to conjure up Liverpool so well because he's not from Liverpool. I mean, I, I'm I'm from over the water. I'm 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 not a scouser. I'm a plastic scouser. You know, I'm I'm from over the water, and I used to gaze at Liverpool lovingly. And when I got there, even though the scousers think they're the master race, they kind of take take the city for granted to a degree I think and when you go into it you're just like wow you know uh, and I think he he does that brilliantly in that book I think he does it brilliant and he does the music scene the bitchiness of the music scene as well is just it's just superb isn't it you know yeah you know writing about Pete Burns uh, and but it's a small city Liverpool scene so you would see yeah. these people around you know 
So tell us about this next yeah, one. Yeah, so Ian MacDonald, who was um, a writer for, for the NME in, uh, in the 1970s, and you know, one of these guys who would you know, write absolutely massive, dense pieces uh, for you know, just going in, in the NME. And he wrote uh, a book about the Beatles, which is this one I've got here, Revolution in the Head, the Beatles records, and the 60s. Uh, this is the uh, third revised edition. Uh, so this includes the songs that, uh, that came out on the anthology and, and BBC uh, session albums. And essentially what he does, he goes through the Beatles uh, recorded output in the order it's recorded, which is different to the order that it was released. It's similar not quite the same yeah. and it actually reveals a, a different story the you can really see uh the rivalry between particularly between lennon and mccartney but then george you know pops up every so often but it's like you know john lennon coming with a ticket to ride and then paul comes in with a, a song called that means a lot which was kind of his take on doing ticket to ride but you know john's was better and, and things like that um he goes into them in, in great detail you know quite a musicologist point of view and really goes into real detail about how the songs were constructed, the influences that, that go in there. But also, you know, it says the Beatles records in the 60s, he puts them all into uh, a social, cultural and, and political context as well. For somebody who, you know, was born after the Beatles split up but grew up listening to their music, I think I was born knowing their music. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's just kind of like part part of the DNA. Um but it kind of puts it all all into context and really makes sense of it, and also makes sense of uh, what was going on with with music in, in the sixties. And there's a, a chronology at the end of the book it goes through year by year and month by month of you know what the Beatles were doing each month, what was happening in the UK pop charts, as it says. So what was happening in the singles charts? You know what the, the most notable singles there. Uh, what was happening in current affairs and what was happening in in culture. Uh, and, and science, uh, what films were coming out, and what artists were influential, you know, exhibitions and things that were on. And when I read it about 10 years ago, I, I was in the process of digitising all my music collection, putting it on the computer, and I was looking at that chronology in the back, thinking, well, I think I've got, you know, all the all these songs that I mentioned. You know, I've definitely got all the Beatles songs. So first of all, I made a playlist that put all the Beatles songs in the order that, that they are in the <laughs> right, book. Okay. So, so you could hear hear it, you know. Dear listener, Simon is a music obsessive, and and these lists this does this does not surprise me that he's made <laughs> this kind of playlist. So, 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 so I did that playlist, and um, yeah, and and when you start including the outtakes and things like that, the the picture that it gives you is is you know a lot different to the official story of the right. Beatles and their records. Because right. this is the Beatles and their songs and their, their development, their progression and their falling apart. And you can you can really, really hear it. You know, it's not just like listening to the White Album saying, oh, there, there's a band falling apart. When you listen to the White Album in the order it's recorded. Right. It's a different, okay. slightly different story. Have you still got the playlist? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I've got that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm sure. I'm sure somebody's probably doing it on Spotify. Yeah, right now. Um, but the the other thing I did was I was looking looking in the back thing. I've got those songs. Oh yeah, well, you know, that was number one in 1960. Yeah, I've got that. So I started going through. It's like yeah, got got that one. Yeah, yeah, that was you know, and and constructed this massive playlist of the 1960s. Yeah, it must be around about a thousand songs, wow. and it goes through uh, month by month each year of the sixties with the, you know the most popular songs 
that they were in the charts. And when you listen through to it, 1965 is just incredible. You can really hear how you know, the Beatles were you know, clearly the catalyst um, what they were doing in, in kind of 63, 64. In 65, everybody else left them behind. Right. And the Beatles were then playing catch-up, and they didn't catch up again until until Revolver. Right. So, yeah. uh, no, really, really, you have to hear this playlist. Uh, to, you know, I'm to, not denying that yeah. there's a lot of great stuff going on. Yeah, to hear, you know, where the influence of when Motown actually hits the charts is not just, you know, influencing the Beatles and the Stones and, you know, all these bands that are, like, you know, looking to America to get decent songs to cover. These songs start hitting the charts. And then you hear, you know, Uptight by Stevie Wonder, followed by Spencer Davis Group, something like Keep On Keep On Running. And he, hold on, they must have heard that, then did that, and then the Stones come along and do that, and then Manfred Mann, who you might you know you might dismiss them, but when you actually hear it in context, in context yeah. how it was coming out in, in the 1960s, how all these th- things were were hitting the charts, it just yeah. Yeah, and, and you can see that yeah, you know, nineteen sixty five was just this most incredible year, just the absolute explosion of of ideas and and all the great music. It was just packed into that year. It was just incredible. So, is the book one that you would read and enjoy the actual reading of it? Yeah, well? yeah. Well, the story of it's a great story. The story of the yeah. Beatles, isn't it? It's a great yeah. story. Yeah. So you don't necessarily need to listen to all those songs in. In chronological order to get absolutely not. That's just me being an absolute obsessive, you know. Just you know, just in case somebody wants to just read the book without putting a playlist of a thousand songs. Yeah, you don't need any of that. I mean, it's a book that you can dip in and out of, or you can read in one whole thing. So you can use it as a reference book, or you can use it as a book to tell the story of the Beatles. And um, the the, the next book um, that I've got is uh, in a similar vein. I think the aim initially was to write something about David Bowie in that style, but it's it's much more than, than just a reference book. It, it breaks David Bowie's career down into different categories. So it's you know um, song by song, and then it goes album by album, and it breaks down what he was doing in you know, live performance, with his films, and you know, so on and so on. Uh, it's Complete David Bowie by Nicholas Pegg. Uh, I think this is about the fifth edition, something right. like that. And and in each edition, you know, it, it gets bigger and bigger. Uh, not just because there was new music to be added to it, but because there was new information right. be, being uncovered. And and I I've actually got to play a part in that. Um, reading the book, there just seems to be like glaring omissions in there, uh, and also some sort of like you know vague misunderstandings about things. So particularly about. Um, Krautrock, about the, the influence of, of the experimental German bands of the 1970s on David Bowie's music, and to what extent he just blatantly ripped them off. Right. Well, he, he, he was a magpie, wasn't he? He was, a, mag, he was a magpie, but yeah. because the German bands were kind of quite quite underground for, for quite a long time, Bowie kind of got away with it. He did with the Velvets. They yeah, he did with, did, did, with, did with the Velvets. Um, well, talent borrows, genius steals is the same, yeah. I think, isn't it? <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. And there just seems to be some detail missing on that, which I was kind of like, yeah, but he did, and he did this. And uh, and I was put in touch with the writer um, quite a few years ago now and contributed some you know, useless bits of trivia to a couple of previous editions. You know, by, by the time this, this edition came around, 
I basically wrote an essay. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Sent it through. Picked apart Hunky Dory, you know, which everyone cites as, yeah, and it is a brilliant, a brilliant album. But it was David Bowie playing at being a singer-songwriter. Yes. That's what was... It, that's, well, what, it, that's what it was to sell his songs. Yeah. That was that's what was big in 1971. Mm. It was Neil Young and it was Bridge Over Troubled Water and Harry Nilsson and, and, and things like that. And And it is Bowie just saying... I can play at being this as well. But through doing that, that's how he learnt to craft songs. But there are, you know, you can listen to a song like Kooks on Hunky Dory, and then you listen to When the Morning Comes by Neil Young from um, After the Gold Rush. And okay. yeah, it's like, okay, so you can hear what, what, he, you know, what he borrowed from, from that. Um, uh, so there's, there's all sorts of little things. i got a... a, a um, songwriter called Ron Davis who did a, an album called Silent Song Through the Land um, and that's got the original version of It Ain't Easy on there which Bowie covered and Long John Baldry and uh, right. um, Dennis Waterman covered it as well but there's a song, the, the title song of the album is where Bowie nabbed the riff for Andy Warhol so there's all these these little things that I'd kind of picked up on over the years, I just crammed them all basically into this essay and sent it off to, to Nick who is, you know um gracious enough to to include most of it in there and so you know and and i see that he signed it he signed it yeah got a complimentary thank you got a complimentary copy i was invited to the launch party couldn't make it unfortunately got my name in the back and it is yeah um what i like about it is that it's it's factually correct (laughs) <laughs> uh, there's, there, yeah, there's, 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 I love that yeah because there's so many you know book, books about Bowie they've got your half truths untruths uh, you know it kind of supports the myth and not not really what happened whereas this you know it, it, it it's kind of like it ignores all all the tittle tattle okay gets you know gets down to business uh, but he writes in a really really entertaining way it's not a dry read in any way whatsoever. And in, in separating uh, Bowie's career into the different sections, you might think that it, that it kind of gets repetitive because, you know, the, the Ziggy Stardust album, then the songs that are on the album, and he writes about them all separately, and then there was the tour. But it actually builds up to, to, to you know, present a really complete and comprehensive picture of, of where Bowie was at, you know, uh, throughout his life. So, yeah, a, a really thorough book. But... Um, the, the, I've brought another David Bowie book I've with, never, with my here. I've never heard of this one. Yeah, so this is this has actually um, provided a lot of the source material for Bowie's early career in um, the complete David Bowie. It's uh, called the Pitt Report, written by Kenneth Pitt, who was David Bowie's manager uh, from kind of nineteen sixty six to to nineteen seventy. Uh, it's the guy who was who's kind of been uh, wrongly attributed uh, with pushing David Bowie into like the the Anthony Newley um, sort of thing, uh, you know, and, and copying copying that. Whereas you know, he writes in here that you know, that was all Bowie's idea he he tried to steer him away from that but he was you know uh, kenneth pitt still still with us today a very elderly gentleman now but he was uh, very well connected in the entertainment industry you know when bob dylan came over to tour in the uk in the 60s it'd be kenneth pitt that would be put in charge of looking after him right. quite quite a few other people that he got um, connections with and it was him who uh, went to New York in late 1966, was taken to meet uh, Andy Warhol at Factory, and was given an acetate of the first Velvet Underground album, which you know, 
gave it to David Bowie. Within a week, David Bowie was doing Waiting for the Man in his life set. <laughs> Brilliant. Because even though he was kind of cast aside by Bowie and replaced by a, a more ruthless manager. Main man. Yeah, main man, Tommy DeFries. Kenneth Pitt's not bitter about that. He knows the part that he played in, in Bowie's career, and it was quite a fundamental part in basically broadening his artistic uh, horizons, taking him to theatre, introducing him to books, taking him to see certain films, and basically just giving him a, a, an education, a grounding in all the things that he would go on to to kind of you know use throughout his career. But that, I presume many of these, slight, they were all slightly older until you know the Beatles came along. Brian Epstein was a, a younger manager. They were slightly older, and. It was show business, so there's nothing to be bitter about because some you win, some you lose. Yeah, exactly, that, it was show business, and that's exactly you know business of show and yeah. you, you know. So he wasn't a music manager; he was a, he was a, you know, a, a showbiz manager, mm. and you know, and like I said, very, very well connected in that world. Yes. Does he write well? Is it? Yeah, I imagine you know some somebody's cast their eye over it, but no, it's, it's just you know, really, really nicely written, and uh, it's it's all from his point of view. And he doesn't try to, you know, overplay his part in what he did in things. It's just a very frank and honest account of, of that time, uh, sort of, you know, 66, 1970, and, um, you know, lots of you know, previously unseen photos. And it's just a fascinating book because it just gives a real um, insight into how David Bowie became David Bowie. You have one book left. One book left. And this is a, this is a work of fiction, isn't it? It's a work it? of fiction. Kind of. <laughs> yes, kind of. It, it, yes. Doesn't, it doesn't stray too far from, from the path that, that we've uh, been walking down. <laughs> it's um, High Fidelity by uh, Nick Hornby. And again, a, a book that I've read you know, several times over the years. Bought it when it came out in the, the mid-90s. Enjoyed it. Uh, you know, good book. Came back to it a few years later. You know, lived, lived life a bit more. Understood it a bit more. Read it again a couple of years ago. I'm like, okay, I, I know where he's at now. So it's set in North London, and a friend of mine used to run a record shop in North London. Nick Hornby was one of his customers oh. in the early 90s, yeah. and how he describes Rob, what he's wearing, you know, leather jacket, jeans, that kind of thing. It's exactly my mate, Johnny. And you know, Nick Hornby used to come in there and you know, just sort of browse the racks quietly, and then you know, a couple of years later, this book slips out. My mate, Johnny, reads it. It's like, What? <laughs> yeah, this is this is basically you know how he describes the shop was the layout of of, of my mate's shop in, in in Crouch Hill. Right. <laughs> but High Fidelity was it was a, a massive book for the time, wasn't it? It was like it 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 kind of hit just pre Britpop, wasn't it? But it seemed to yeah, and it but it seemed to tap into this thing where. You know, Mojo magazine was mm. was just on the scene, yeah. and you know we, we got you know we got this thing Mojo men, you know uh, yeah. sort of men of a certain age, you know buying magazines and kind of, kind of you know it's the beginning of all that nostalgia yeah. thing. But yeah, the, the you know, high fidelity begins with Rob reorganising his record collection, so it's something that I'm kind of yeah very familiar with, but. I don't necessarily identify with with any of the people in that book because right, it's always yeah. you know like, oh, what what you know your top five you know happy songs and you know, it, it's always you know about making lists and things like that and I I find it very hard to be definitive in that way there's there's there's, there's too much so yeah well I enjoyed the book but I I don't I've never made a list of of my 
any, anything. Never made a list of my books or my records or anything like that. Um, but but, I, but I, I enjoyed the book, even though I didn't relate on that level, just because it... it, it, it I'd, I just kind of knew what records I had, if you know what I yeah. mean. Yeah. So then the thread, obviously, in most of these is is music. Yeah. Of course. Can you connect them to the to the books on walking? Um, I don't know. Um, so, yeah, I don't, I don't know if, if there's yeah, any way to, to connect the, the, the walking and, and the music. Um, because if I, if I you know, did walk the Pennine Way... I wouldn't want to listen to music while I was doing it. Right, you just. I'd want to walk. listen to what was going on around me. Okay. Because you know, I I I enjoy the sound of of what's around me. Right. So I don't necessarily like to block it off with you know music or, or anything else like okay. that. Okay. Well, that's interesting because then you obviously like listening. So. Yeah. You know, so the music and the, there we go. There's a the connection. There we are. There's the connection. There's the connection in a roundabout way. So any of them your particular favourites? If you if you were say you were going walking the Pennine Way, and you were not you know, other than a guidebook and, and a map, yeah, and you had to sit there in the evening wherever you were staying over. What would you like to read? Um, he- head on's a bit heavy. <laughs> right, okay. You got a backpack. Yeah, I got a backpack. Um, you can't have a Kindle. Yeah, I can't have a Kindle. No, that's no. that's fine. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. Th- th- I mean, the favourite one is you know, head on out of all these that's interesting because it, it's not really the others are slightly academic aren't they, are, they? Yeah. and and head on isn't is head it? on isn't no um yeah like, yeah yeah the david bowie and, and beatles books yeah very it's, it's like a, a reference book mm. yeah uh, an encyclopedia i mean one of my favorite books uh when i was a kid was the uh, guinness book of british hit singles which right. just listed every every chart hit from in the uk from 1952 onwards i remember finding that in a bookshop uh, we were on holiday in Wales. I was about um, eight, nine years old. I was just like, whoa. And I just used to, you know, when I eventually got my own copy, I used to read that for pleasure. Well, therefore, I love the fact then that Julian Cope is messing with your head. Yes. He's messing up all your lists, isn't he? Yes. And messing with it. And you enjoy that. Yeah. You enjoy having you Because then you can put them back into order, can't you, later? But you know what I did the last time I read this? You put all the songs that he mentions in there into order. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> any song that you mentioned <laughs> Peru, Bully, Scratch, Perry a Teardrop Explodes song I'm uh, not surprised yeah, at all and just made yeah, head, head on the playlist Brilliant. well uh, our guest on this uh, podcast was uh, Simon Galloway um, and he led us through books mostly about music but also about walking the moors so thank you very much Simon this is Judge Street Community Bookshop saying we'll see you again Thank you. In the Bookshop, the George Street Community Bookshop podcast for book lovers everywhere.